Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ireland Football Fans Podcast. I'm Joseph McCarthy of the Irish Abroad website. I'm joined again by Mark Kennedy of Hawkeye Sidekick and Philip Flanagan of the Bottomless Pit of Football. After Stephen Kenny named his squad to face Greece and Gibraltar earlier, we're going to discuss the players that were included and, of course, the players that were excluded. And we're also going to look back at the Under-17s European Championship campaign, which ended recently at the finals in Hungary. Mark and Phil, we haven't talked in a while. It's good to hear from you both again. Uh, how are you both doing? All good, Joe. All good. All good, lads. All good. Enjoying the fine weather. Yep, there's been a recent spike in the temperatures here, but it's probably not going to be much compared to what the boys in green are going to be facing in Athens in a little over two weeks' time. Kick off. Stephen Kenny named his squad earlier today. Uh, there's first-time call-ups for Peterborough's Jack Taylor in midfield, but as always, as when a squad is announced, I feel there was as much time, or possibly even more time spent, on the players that were omitted than the players that were actually included. Mark, you know, looking down through it, it seems that we have a settled squad at the moment. Only the, the one new call-up, Jack Taylor, and only one other uncapped player in uh, Celtics, Liam Scales. There's not a lot of difference between it and the squad that faced France and Latvia in March. The big takeaway from those two games was Evan Ferguson's first goal for Ireland and Mikey Johnson's performance in both games. What do you think we're going to see from the team in two weeks' time in Greece? Probably hit the nail on the head there, Joel. It looks like quite a consistent squad, isn't it, after the, the France and Latvia game? I suppose the hope really here is that we continue the performances of that French game, particularly the high press, the physicality the organisation and also the threat in the final third when we got opportunities. So, again, it's going to be no tall order going to Greece and Athens in 29 degree heat probably and a bit of humidity on top of that. So I think we're under no illusions here, but it's do or die, I think, here, uh, Joe. And I think the squad kind of indicates that there has been no controversial, really, omissions here. These are the, the most of the squad have been kind of under Stephen Kenny and the coaching staff for the last two, two and a half years. So it, it remains to be seen. Hopefully Mikey Johnson will get a bit of game time here, particularly in that Greece game with 30 minutes to go. I think his pace would really be beneficial for Ireland and provide a bit of an outlet here for um, Evan Ferguson as well, who seems to be kind of the main man here, isn't he? You'd hope that uh, his loan spell in Portugal with Guimarães, hope that's how it's pronounced, will acclimatise him a little bit better to the heat than the rest of the squad. Phil, you know, we're going to get on to the players that were included uh, in a few minutes' time, but of the players that weren't included in the, the final call-up, um, were there any surprising omissions for you? I don't think so. Obviously, Manning, 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 everyone was going on about Manning again, but he was actually called up and refused the call-up due to personal circumstances. No one knows what that is, but besides that, I don't think there's any glaring omissions. When you look back to the squad that played against France. The only three we're actually missing are all through injury. Coleman, Oma Bamadele and Ogbeni. Will Keane was the other player who was involved against Latvia. So there hasn't been anyone omitted since the last squad through anything other than injury. So like you said it yourself at the top of the podcast, it's it's very settled. He's going with what he knows. And I suppose the fact that there's so many injuries on that right side, it's given him a small bit of leeway to experiment that's probably why Manning got in the team but that's obviously why 
why Taylor and Scales are in the team as well, because that right side has been decimated. If you look at the France game, Coleman started, Ben started, um, Omobamadele was cover, all gone now. So that obviously means a switch back for Doherty to the right-hand side, which would have then freed up a spot for Manning if he had taken the call-up. I think it's a set of squad. I think there's no surprises. Like, I see a lot of people going on about Tom Cannon, Preston, doing really well. But, look, at the end of the day, he plays one up front. He's going to play one up front against Greece with someone playing off and probably Knight. So if you're one up front or maybe two, it's either going to be Ferguson on his own or Ferguson and Obafemi. And then he likes Parrot and he likes Ida. There's no room for anyone else. He's not going to give someone their international debut in a must-win game against Greece away from home. It's not going to happen. So I, I, I don't know why people are upset about it. Like, It's just not going to happen. And then, obviously, you want to give your more settled players game time and a chance to score goals against the likes of Gibraltar at home. It's Again, it's not a time to be bringing in someone brand new. The depth is there up front. We don't need anyone else at the moment. I don't think there's anyone... There's any glare in emissions. Um, obviously, there's a few senior players missing, but they've probably been nearly retired at this stage. Duffy, Brady, Horahan, Stevens. I'd say Horahan is gone. Stevens, more than likely. Brady, God love him. He's probably done as well. And unless Duffy gets back playing for someone all next season, I'd say he's gone as well. So, no, settled. There's nobody really that shouldn't be in it, that, that should be or should or shouldn't be. I think that's a good point about Tom Cannon's omission as well. There's... Stephen Kenny has worked with Troy Paris uh, at under-21 and at senior level. He knows the player, he knows what he can do, and he knows that, you know, dovetail effectively with Michael Obafemi. Cannon has had a better season than Parrot at the same club at Preston North End. I don't think that's uh, up for debate. But Parrot is, I suppose, with 18 caps and four goals, a pretty seasoned international. And as well as Cannon has played... Dropping someone like that into a competitive international away from home for your first cap, yeah, that's not going to happen. For me, uh, I don't know, we've discussed it before, I think that Stephen Kenny could do with looking at the players that are playing in Major League Soccer in the US at the moment. John Gallagher's got his fifth goal for Austin FC. Derek Williams playing very well in defence for DC United. And Connor Ronan is growing into the role uh, in central midfield for Colorado Rapids, you know, finally reaping the benefits of regular first-team football. Going down to the, the squad itself now, Mark, I mean, we have to imagine that Gavin Bizzuno will start in goals. Queen Kelleher only played one game for Liverpool this season in the final game of the season against Southampton. And Mark Travers, what he did play in Bournemouth's final game of the season has very much been a out of the first team for the Cherries for a few months now so you know even with Southampton being relegated you'd have to imagine that Bazunu will start against Greece and probably Gibraltar as well Yeah I'd, I'd agree with you there Joe but I think it'll be a nice acid test of Gavin Bazunu's composure here given the end of the season in Southampton where he was dropped for McCarthy in goal Things didn't get any better for Southampton. But for the player itself, probably disappointing that he couldn't have contributed come the end of the season. So I think it'll be interesting just to see Bazuna is our number one. So it'll be interesting just to see how he bounces back from that Southampton club. Disappointment, really. But yeah, as you say, Creven Keller probably has a, a, an interesting summer ahead. Does he stick with Liverpool or does he look somewhere else like a Brentford or someone else in Premier League around that area? 
and as for Mark Travers, Natho had to go back to Brazil uh, for a family uh, bereavement. But he played very well against Everton in Goodison Park, saved absolute worldies there. So, I mean, Travers is coming in there as well. So the competition will be fierce here, Joe, but yeah, you'd have to go with Bazuno, really, wouldn't you? Travers doing his very best to keep either Leicester or Leeds in the Premier League on the final day of the season, but uh, ultimately Everton staying up. We spoke last year that the four games in June uh, was an opportunity to maybe have a look at Travers again. In nets for Stephen Kenny, you could argue that the Gibraltar game is the ideal game to do that, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're going to see Bazunu adding to his 14 caps. In defence, James McLean is two games away from his 100th cap, and assuming that he does play against Greece, he will earn it against Gibraltar. McLean, I think, is the absolute model professional. Doesn't get injured, doesn't have a reputation for being in, out. Uh, he's obviously a committed family man, and every manager that's ever had him seems to absolutely love him. He signed a, an extension to his contract with Wigan, so he's going to be playing League One football next season. It won't be the greatest preparation for facing the likes of France or the Netherlands, but at this stage of his career, it's the ideal place for him to be. I was there when McLean made his debut on the 29th of February in 2012. He got a, a response or a welcome from the crowd that I don't know if I've ever seen any other player get. I'm looking forward to being there for his 100th cap in a little over two weeks' time. Can I just go back to the goalies for a second quickly? Sure, yeah. I would be fairly certain Kelleher will play against Gibraltar. And the reason I think so is because, well, he, we know Kenny likes to switch every now and again, but I think it's a, it's a big summer for Kelleher. Everybody's fairly certain he's going to leave Liverpool. Kenny even came out today or yesterday and said he needs to leave. He'll probably leave. Klopp said there a couple of weeks ago, oh, he won't be leaving unless it was you know an extraordinary offer of, say, 25 million. That's just Klopp letting everybody know. What's what's going to get them at the table to discuss a transfer? So I think they'll want to see him in goal. People will want to see him. People will come to this game to see him, maybe scouts, maybe other managers. I think they'll throw him in the shop window big time against Gibraltar and say, right, here he is. One last chance to see him before the end of the summer transfer window or whatever. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him start. The fact now that Bazunu isn't starting as well, I think it, it's nearly easier for Kenny to get away with playing Kelleher and not be questioned on it either against Gibraltar I wouldn't play him against Greece obviously Bazoon is number one but I could definitely see him playing against Gibraltar it's a good point I think there was a story that Mick McCarthy picked Alan Kelly over Dean Kiley at one point because Kelly was looking for a move and a scout was coming to the game and he needed the game time to show what he could do so we could see a repeat uh, against Gibraltar with Keller given his chance to show what he can do in goals yeah. you know Keller's 24 now he'll be 25 in November and Bazunu has more than 100 senior appearances than him you know if you think about it if Bazunu retired in the morning and, and he's not going to and Keller suddenly became Liverpool's number one and played every league game every FA Cup game every league cup game every game in Europe it would still be sometime around April or May of 2025 before he overtook Bazuno in terms of senior appearances. Don't get me wrong, I get the attraction of being a Liverpool FC player. He has a Champions League winner's medal in his back pocket. But it's getting to the point where he has to decide if he wants to be an active player or if he just wants to be the backup. And 
the longer he goes as the backup, the harder it's going to be to justify his inclusion in the team. There are players uh, every year moving up through the age grades, and eventually one of them uh, is going to be playing regularly, and he's going to have a a better case for inclusion in in Stephen Kenny's squad or whoever the manager happens to be at the time. Yeah, like Max O'Leary, he's probably looking at this and saying, I've been playing regular first-team football at Bristol City all season. And we have a few guys here that have been sitting on the bench here uh, for their respective clubs ahead of them. So I think that probably would have been a difficult conversation for Stephen Kenny to have for someone like Max O'Leary. As he said, the underage talent coming through as well. I think it's a good point. I think it's it's a make or break summer for Kareem and Kelleher. I suppose, Philip, from your perspective, I know you're a Liverpool fan, but do you feel that he'll stay in Anfield or will he move no, uh, to Pastor soon? He's 100% gone. Just, there's, there's no way he stays. I think I read Adrian has signed a new contract as well, so they'll okay. love to get someone else in. I think he's 100% gone. But here's a hypothetical question for you both. Okay? I would imagine Kelleher is going this summer and it's, it's obviously going to be a Premier League team that signs him. And it looks like for a first-choice position. Brentford are linked, Brighton are linked, a couple other clubs that are linked, right? Quevin Keller signs as a number one for a, for a Premier League club in you know July, and it's for a number one position. If you could pick a career to have up to that point, would you have Bazunu or Kelleher's? Because Kelleher will be a number one goalkeeper. He'll have played competitive Champions League football more than one occasion against big teams. Ajax for one. He's played in the League Cup final. He's played in plenty of big League Cup games. He's played in a few Premier League games. He's got winners' medals. He's played under one of the best keepers in the world for the last few seasons and has been learning off him. Tafarel is the goalkeeper coach. He's a wealth of experience in a big team setup, and he's now going to be number one in the Premier League team. Would you have had that, or would you have had Bazunas, who now won't be first choice in a championship team by the looks of it? Just because I know, like you, met, you met, I only asked this. It's just an interesting one for me because you obviously mentioned the amount of games Bazuna has played, but like. Does it solely come down to that? It probably should because it's football. But if you could pick which pass would you have liked to have? Would you be in Kelleher's position or Bazunas? Oh, I think from a footballing education perspective, it definitely has to be Cleveland Kelleher, surely, isn't it? Just in terms of the background, everything else, he's got a solid school of goalkeeping behind him. You know, don't forget he scored the, the winning penalty oh, in the league. I was there, I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of moment right. that you can't... You know, you can't buy. You know, there are very few players have that cup final winning moment in their careers, and it's it's rare for a goalkeeper to have it. I think you know we're looking at it as fans. You know, we want our players to be playing regularly, and we're disappointed that one of our best players isn't playing regularly, and it's possibly compounded because we've got competition in one area of the park where you where managers don't really rotate players out. I just think it's it's interesting because game time is obviously everything for players, but it's it's everything and it isn't. He'll he'll probably end up leaving this year and he'll have had he'll have an unbelievable education and he'll have winners medals. He'll be been involved in the tournaments not as much as he would have liked, but he'll still be involved. And it's a testament to probably his potential that Liverpool have kept him on. Like if. And this isn't Gavin Bazunu knocking at all, and I'm not pitting them against each other. I think Bazunu is a fine keeper, and he will end up being a, like an even better keeper. But City didn't keep Bazunu. Liverpool kept Kelleher. I think that comes down to the difference between the players, though. Bazunu wanted to play first team football. You know, he pushed I mean, for the, if, the loans away from Man City. But if he was really pushed and he was said, right, you can have the League Cup, stay with us, we'll give you the League Cups, you might get a few league games. 
If he was given that, he would have stayed. Yeah, but look, and Pep is ruthless when it comes to players as well. If he thinks someone is unhappy, then they're gone. Uh, I'm not saying Bazzini wasn't happy. I'm just saying that he wanted to be playing, and he was happy with the two loan spells. Look, Southampton came in with a, an offer for him. I'm not sure if the head of the academy or their head of recruitment had come from Man City, so he obviously knew a lot about Bazunu. He, you know, he had been there when they scouted him and signed him from Shamrock Rovers. He obviously thought that he was ready for Premier League football, and the offer that they made was acceptable to City. They obviously, told Bazunu that he would be their first choice, and he was for the majority of the season. He wasn't going to get that amount of football at Man City. He wasn't going to play that amount of Premier League games if he had stayed. He'd still be behind Ederson, but he could possibly be looking at a, a, an FA Cup winner's medal and you know a Champions League winner's medal. It's all hypotheticals, of course, but it's just an interesting point because, like the way some people talk about Keller, is he's going to be you know he's got two years left. That's it, he's done. What's he going to do? What's he hanging around for? Like, but he's you know twenty four is still young enough for a goalie. He's got at least twelve years less left in, in, in his career. And yeah. well, we're disappointed that he doesn't have more first-team football under his belt. He also doesn't have those minutes in his legs. He's he hasn't had to face any serious injuries. You know, we hear a lot about players who retire and then in their their forties and fifties having the kind of surgery that had previously been the reserved for men and women in their seventies. Maybe the minutes that Kelleher hasn't played means that he won't have to go through that at the end of his career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd also add here, Joe, in terms of Kelleher, if he does move, he can use the Gavin Bazzino summer move last season as a bit of a case study in terms of really picking the right club at the right time. Bazzino looked as if this time last year when we heard the link, Southampton, it sounded like a great move, but unfortunately for the club hierarchy in Southampton, they kind of dropped the ball in terms of not having senior leadership down the spine of the team, he was kind of exposed rotten, wasn't he, from day one of the Premier League. So I think from Creeving Kelleher's perspective and his agent, they just need to kind of feel their way in the transfer window and see what the best club is for Creeving. It might be you know, too good to be true to go maybe for a club that might be kind of struggling at the other end of the table. So I think it's important for Kelleher to pick the right club here uh, if he is going to move. But again, like with Liverpool as well, he's he's highly respected. So it's a win-win for him. Yeah. You know, looking at the Premier League table now at the end of the season, if you think he's he's not going to go to say anyone in the top four, if we say Crystal Palace in eleventh, or would you say he he aim for maybe higher? I mean, I I I don't think any of the teams ahead of Palace would sign him. So if you think Palace in eleventh, Chelsea in twelfth, that's not likely. Wolves in 13th, West Ham in 14th, Bournemouth at 15, Forest at 16, or Everton at 17. Talk of Brentford. David Reyes definitely out the door. Spurs will need a new keeper. I'd throw someone else in the mix, Aston Villa. I wouldn't be surprised if Martinez went to Pastors New. If that was the case, then it might be a super spot here for Creeping Kelleher. Uh, typically, you know, getting some European football as well to boot. So that yeah. might be one to maybe watch out for as well. It's probably the most interesting story as regards the transfer of Irish football this summer. There's no other real big player on the move that's going to demand a, a fairly substantial transfer fee. No, it's a good point as well. I mean, looking down to the squads, everyone is fairly settled at their respective clubs. There's one or two, like Jeff Hendrick, 
might be made available for a nominal fee from Newcastle or Mikey Johnson could make his loan to Portugal from Celtic uh, a permanent deal. But yeah. I, yeah. Duffy as well. Well, I, I would say definitely Duffy. Be interesting to see where he lands. I know he's not involved now, but he would have an eye on getting back into that Ireland squad. He could be a, a good signing for one of the promoted teams, possibly available on a free transfer. So, I mean, they'll save money on the fee and they can offer him, you know, the wages. He's an experienced Premier League player, experienced international player, offers a threat both ends of the pitch. I think he'd be a good signing for all three promoted sides, actually. Even yeah. Nottingham Forest as well. I think they'd probably need a little bit of reinforcement there in that centre-half position. Defensively, they were a little bit caught out at various points of the season. And, you know, if you had a Shane Duffy with massive leadership there on both ends of the park, I think Steve Cooper probably would be uh, running the rule over the there. Um, OK, sorry, we've gone way off track now. Sorry, the defense, Bill, yeah. the so, defense. Well, the big thing was the last time out was Odauda was injured. And I do wonder if Odauda was fit, would Doherty have remained at right wing back and... Coleman would have stayed on the bench as previous and Odaudo would have went left wing back because we know how much Stephen Kenny likes him. Now, in this case, a lot of our right side are out. Odaudo is back. So the big question is, does Odaudo start left wing back? I would imagine he does and Doherty goes right wing back. Your cover then, obviously, for Odaudo is McLean and your cover for right wing back. Well, I, they have scales, but they have Sykes down as a, as a defender. But he hasn't really played that much in defence for Bristol, from what I was looking at. He seems to play more in the midfield. So that's a a bit of a strange one, unless he's just named him as a defender. You have your your trio in the middle and Lenehan as cover. So Collins, Egan and O'Shea, Lenehan as cover. So I don't think there's there's any real surprises there. I think there will be a little reshuffle of the defence, though, just to bring Doherty back onto the right side. Lenehan is more than solid cover. And... um, McLean is obviously going to be covered for, for left-back, as I said. So it's really just what he does with the right side. Maybe Sykes will be a midfielder. He probably won't get any game time. And maybe they'll look to Adam Brown again as cover for right-back. It's hard to know. But it's like a, a settled core of of four defenders there and Odauda. So not too bad. Yeah, I think, Joe, he's missed a trick here. Even on that Bristol training session, really running the rule over Danny McNamara from Millwall. Mm. I thought he's been one of the standout right backs in the Skybet Championship this season, and for having such a, I think maybe a Ryan Manning kind of scenario here as well. But I'd definitely be running more of the rule on Danny McNamara because I feel he's probably too good at the Championship level. I feel he he's poised to go Premier League this season. There was rumours of him going in January. I wouldn't be all surprised if one of the newly promoted clubs, even Luton, decided to put a bit of cash in 3.5 million 5 million for Danny McNamara so that would be one for me to maybe kind of track who's maybe outside the squad but might be bursting in when we come into September October McNamara another one of the high performing Irish players in the championship Millwall involved in the the playoffs so you know he'd be a, a slightly fresher than players whose season the championship season finished on the 1st of May and with and with Millwall's you know appearance in the Playoffs, you know, he did have, you know, what they'd call in the States post-season fixtures. With Lennon playing in the playoffs with Middlesbrough, you know, I think he'll be slightly better prepared than the, the other championship players in the squad. Looking down to midfield, I think midfield is probably the most settled of the four positions in the in the squad. No great surprise. And I think, you know, small one played very well. 
on his debut. I'm looking forward to seeing him playing again in these two games. In, you know, I don't think there's going to be too much in the way of experimentation in midfield. I think we're going to see Cullen in centre midfield with Malumbi and probably Jason Knight playing either side of him. And Knight uh, a little bit ahead of the, the other two anchoring the midfield. And then we could see McLean as a, a left wing back and then Darty or possibly Brown on the right. Look, uh, I think, Joe, you've kind of summed it up nicely there. I think it's a very consistent midfield setup. I think the fascinating one was probably Jack Taylor uh, from Peterborough United. Very impressive, I thought, in the first leg against Sheffield Wednesday, like every Peterborough player. But then, obviously, the second uh, leg just basically script went out the window. I think he's a very tidy player, but is he going to see any game time, really? Not against Greece, but maybe against Gibraltar, maybe for 10, 15 minutes. But Kenny has really gone consistent here on the squad selection, uh, even Somatics, um, the Blackburn midfielder, has been very impressive, you know, particularly in the latter end of the season with the Blackburn playoff run, just running short. Obviously, that epic win against Millwall last day of the season wasn't enough. He's been a player that's probably on the radar of Stephen Kenny as well. So it's not as if we don't have players that are looking to get into the squad, which is probably good. And, and I would say with Philip as well, Definitely Sykes is definitely a central attacking midfielder here. Uh, I think the defender is maybe a makeshift d- decision here. If bodies go down, particularly against in Greece, for me, Sykes is an attacking midfielder. He's been like that for Oxford and plus uh, Bristol City as well. So, yeah, I think that's another midfield body here. Maybe that could get maybe a little bit of game time against Gibraltar if the game's in hand. I just keep coming back to, to our right side. So, obviously, against France, if Benny started... Now, you've mentioned Smallbone there. Like, Smallbone was very impressive against Latvia on the ball going forward. He took up kind of that inside right position in the half space, got forward an awful lot, nearly kind of like, I think we spoke about it at the time, nearly the way Henderson used to play with Trent Alexander-Arnold or Salah, very high up the pitch, basically, and then would cover in if needed. With Benny missing, I wonder, does Smallbone get the nod in midfield and he only goes with one striker, so that would be Cullen, Malumbi, Smallbone, and then Knight slightly higher up, and Ferguson as your your centre point. That is something I think that it's definitely an option, and, and it might happen, just because with a Benny out, it would just add a bit more cover on the right-hand side. Other than that, looking at the midfield, it's as is really, isn't it? I didn't watch a lot of Peterborough this year, but saw Taylor's name pop up every now and again and watched a bit of the, the playoff semi-final. He's 10 goals, which is probably more goals than any of our midfielders. Um, and it's that's kind of that problem position that Kenny never really has seemed to figure out. Now, he, he might be stuck with Knight as the advanced midfielder, but like Taylor was brought in and McGrath was brought in before to, to try and solve that problem, and he couldn't. So it'll be an interesting midfield selection I suppose it all depends if he goes 2 or 1 up top and then obviously you've got Jeff Hendrick because if you thought people groaned when they saw Manning's name not in the squad they groaned harder when they saw Jeff's you know if you look at the starting formation in the last two games against Latvia and against France it was 3-5-2 against Latvia and then a 3-4-3 or 3-4-2-1 depending on how you looked at it uh, against France I think he's going to look to minimise the amount of running, especially for the defenders. So I'd say it'll be closer to the 3-5-2 that we saw against Latvia, maybe with the wing-backs 
not getting forward as much as we might expect. We briefly mentioned it at the start, but the heat is going to be a factor in this game. I know it's going to be at night, but it's still going to be very warm and probably very humid. So with that in mind, he's going to, I think he'll try and uh, minimize the amount of running done by the, the team. And I think that's where we're going to miss uh, Albene. You know, he he played that role to absolute perfection against France. He kept, you know, some of the best players in the world occupied just with his presence. And then when we had the ball, uh, he was driving into the French half and taking the ball away uh, from our goal. I think whoever he selects in midfield is going to be the most uh, interesting of the 11 that does face Greece. And because I think the, the forward line is, is fairly settled now, I think we're definitely going to see Ferguson and really the the competition is for his whoever uh, starts beside him. Just from my own opinion, I think it'll be one of Ida or Obafemi purely because they can both hold the ball up and then you know keeping Paris and Johnston uh, on the bench to come uh, you know because when they come on, the energy that they bring to the team like facing a a tiring defence, possibly, you know, probably not as tired as what we're going to be, but we are going to need someone who can dribble, who can run with the ball, and at that stage of the game, and I think that that's what they offer. You'd imagine he would go with the two up front. Like he'll probably treat the Greece game the same nearly as he treated the France game, because the France game was a home game, but it was a cautious home game. You obviously you wanted to have a go, but you had to kind of be very careful that you didn't get nailed on the break as well. And it'll be kind of a similar situation away from home. So he only played the one up front against France, though. But that's the big question. Does he play Obafemi with Ferguson? Or does he play Ferguson by himself with support? Because that will dictate, basically, if there's an extra man in midfield or not. Like, if, if, if you were to ask most people their team in the morning, it would probably go something like Bazunu, Darty and Odauda, Wingbacks, Egan O'Shea, Collins, they pick themselves. Then, if you were playing two up front, it would be Malumbi, Cullen and Knight with Obafemi and Ferguson. But if you took Obafemi out of it, then there's room for Smallbone and then Knight pushes up into an advanced position. So I think they're the two variations of the team we're going to see. So you're right, like it is, it's, it's, it's an interesting decision to make. And this is probably brought on through injuries. Well, Ferguson played up front by himself against France, and yeah. to me, he looked quite isolated in that game. Now, he was up against Canate and Upamecano in defence, and he's not going to be facing players of that quality against either Greece or Gibraltar. But I think because he was isolated, I think he is going to have someone playing beside him. And we have to remember, like as good as Ferguson is, as great as he could be, he's still only 18. You know, he He doesn't have a full season of senior football behind him yet you know he hasn't been a a regular from August to May yet so he's still learning how to play as a striker and asking him to do that asking any 18 year old to do that away from home facing the partisan crowd it's a lot so I don't think he's going to play Ferguson alone up front so I think yeah the question then becomes who's his partner and I think it'll be a player uh, who can hold the ball up which I don't think Parrot or Johnson really offer. That's why I think it'll be one of Obafemi or Ida. And personally, I'd go for Obafemi just because I think he's had a better season. Got promoted with Burnley. I know he wasn't a regular starter for company's team, 
but he did score goals for them, so he's got that on his side. It's his pace yeah. on the turn yeah. and on the shoulder. You know, it's a huge asset, especially away from home. I think for me it would be maybe an Obafemi or a Parrot linking up with Ferguson. We need an attacking outlet here in Athens as well, guys. We can't be letting Greece really come onto us. I know we'll be talking about them in a few minutes, but they like to bomb forward, particularly on the full-back positions. So we need to have that genuine attacking outlet here. Even if we have to vary out our play a little bit, uh, maybe a few direct balls in behind, because Greece do give you chances, and their record in recent games has really suggested that, and I would probably go Obafemi. But again, I would hope for Stephen Kenny in the backroom staff. They've really looked closely in terms of the training sessions in Brighton last week. They're going to Turkey, obviously. They're going to have to play the player that's in form here. Obviously, Evan Ferguson is going to be the big focal point. But really play a guy in form. Let them empty the tank for 50, 55 minutes and bring another guy in. Like an Adam Eder or a Troy Parrott or Obafemi. So I think the bench is going to be huge here, guys, particularly in Greece. You know, you should be seeing substitutions from Kenny. Keith Andrews, the backroom staff, after minute 50 here, given it's the end of a long season. If they don't, we've seen historically some Republic of Ireland teams go through the blender 70, 75th minute, and sure, even the Armenian game in the Nations League, even not too recently. Hopefully, Stephen Kenny has learned from his mistakes and really trust his squad here to deliver a performance and get a result in Greece, which is ultimately the objective here. On the result itself, a win isn't a foregone conclusion. Greece are... They're a tough team to beat at home. You know, their last loss was against Spain in uh, November 2021. You know, since then, okay, they haven't faced great sides at home. Kosovo, Cyprus, Kosovo again, Northern Ireland, Lithuania. But they won three and drew two of those games, only conceding two goals and scoring 10 in the five games. You know, before that Spain game, their last loss at home was in June of 2019 against Armenia. I mean, like a win is an ideal result. I wouldn't be too surprised with a draw, but a, a loss means that the qualification campaign is over. I think a draw means the qualification campaign is over. Realistically, yeah. You can't realistically want to qualify for any major tournament and not beat the season, do you? We won't finish ahead of Greece if we don't get at least four points in the two games against them. So... You know, on that basis, a draw isn't a bad result, but then it'll mean that we have to get a result against the Dutch. A draw isn't a good result. It can't be seen as a good result. It can't be seen as not a as a not a bad result. I think that's how I'm looking at it. It's not a bad result. It is a bad result. <laughs> I disagree with you, but but like really, it is. I can't see how it's not. I know we always say it, but at this stage, eight years into Kenny's reign, this is the 450th game. He needs an away win of note. And this is a team that while they don't lose at home, they don't beat anyone spectacular at home. They don't really beat anyone spectacular away. And this is a game we need to win to keep our qualification chances on track. And Stephen Kenny needs an away win of note. And this is this should be it. Like, no one expects him to, to go to France and get Anton. We're not expected to go to, to the Netherlands and get Anton. A win here is a sign that this team is still progressing. If we don't beat them and we draw, it's a sign of this team isn't really going anywhere. Because at the end of the day, if we're miles off qualification, he's dust. And he knows this himself. So I think a draw is a bad result. Especially because they're, they're seated below us. We can talk them up as much as we want, but at the end of the day, they're beating Cyprus, Latvia and the North. 
they're not hammering anyone good like. And if we play like we played against France, we should beat them. So it's can we add some consistency to our performances? I think you've hit something there, Philip. The trend of Stephen Kenny's era, you know, we've seen the Portugal's, we've seen the Belgium games, we've seen the Serbian games, only then for the following game to be a complete and utter letdown in terms of performance. I mean, this is an acid test for Stephen Kenny and the side to show that they can have their consistency, that they have the maturity to know how to deliver consistently good performances to get results. So I think you've kind of hit on something there, Philip. Uh, to be perfectly fair, I, I'm kind of a new with your camp. For us to be generally saying that Stephen Kenny and this side are evolving, they really do need to be getting 12 points from Greece and Gibraltar. And we get a, hopefully get a result in one of those games to maybe kind of make it interesting. But I think for Stephen Kenny, he has to be aiming for a win here. It's no, if we're kind of going a draw, I think that basically cancels out Greece. Greece then have to go to France on the 19th of June. And if they lose that, they're behind the eight ball as well. And it suddenly becomes a two-horse race in the group. So not really putting any pressure on either France or Netherlands. So, yeah, look, I think the, the mission is clear here. And I think Stephen Kenny, with these craning camps, has really emphasised that point. We need six points coming out of this uh, summer um, fixture list. What was everybody saying after the France game? Like, immediately after the France game. I remember leaving the stadium and everyone was like, well, if we play like that against Greece, we'll beat them. So it's up to Stephen Kenny, John O'Shea, management, coaching tickets, to get them to play like that again. And if they do play like that again, they will beat them. But that's on the management team to to put out the right team and get them to do that. I, like, I don't expect us to qualify. Just as much as I, I expect us to beat the teams underneath us, I don't exactly expect us to beat the teams above us. That would be stupid. But the way the fixtures fall, if we take six points from these two games, we move to six points. The Dutch's next game is against Greece at home, which will put them on... Uh, six points if they won we will have played France so we'd have played a game more let's presume we take nothing from that we then play the Dutch at home potentially on the same points potentially on six points so it's a huge thing to go into that game knowing that if you drew with them they wouldn't overtake you you know or if you bet them you'd be three points clear of them granted a game more played but it's all optics on how the table looks when you play the Netherlands. If we go into the, that game with three points and the Dutch go into it with six points and they beat us, they're nine points clear, game more played. That's it. We're toast. We're done. We're toast by September. Whereas if we beat Greece and we beat Gibraltar, we go into the September fixtures with some real optimism. And maybe we could sneak second place. But we have to beat Greece. And I, I think a draw is no good. Sorry, Joe. No, that's fair. <laughs> um, I guess... You know, I still have the mentality that you know you draw your you don't lose your away games you you win at home. Um, uh, Gerard Julia would be proud of me. <laughs> you know, as we record here, the Greek squad still hasn't been named, but fortunately, everyone's favorite research site Wikipedia still has the the squad that was named for their two games in March, their first qualifier against Gibraltar that they won three 0 and then a friendly at home against Lithuania where they drew. It's a slightly older squad than our own. Uh, the average age is 27 and a half. The squad that Stephen Kenny named has an average age of 25. Slightly more experienced squad as well then, with an average of 22 caps against uh, the uh, average of 19 for the Ireland players. And, uh, and similar to our own, they don't have uh, a lot of goals 
in the team, only one player in double figures. That's their captain, the midfielder, Bacchusidis, who plays for Trabzonspor in what, 11. James McLean is the only player in our squad with uh, more than nine goals at international level for his country. If you're even looking down through the clubs for each player, you know, a lot of them are based in Greece. Um, and then uh, a lot of those uh, in the, the two giants of Greek football, AEK Athens, and Olympiakos with four each and then two each at Panathinaikos and PAOK. Mark, have you any thoughts on the, the squads that Greece picked for their two games in March? I suppose with the Nations League, I was kind of curious how the North would do against Greece even before the qualification with Pete Barclough in charge. And to be perfectly fair, Gus Poyet has really been deliberate in terms of the formation he's uh, created here. It's a 4-3-3. And he's two wing-backs being a fundamental attacking with and particularly against Northern Ireland, particularly in Greece, he those two, George Baldock plays with uh, Sheffield United, and I'm going to murder the Liverpool fullback's name, Desimikas, is it? He also was kind of prominent as well. They provide that width. But another guy we should be looking out for is Corbellis, the Panikonitos. He's a defensive midfielder, so as the two fullbacks bomb on, he basically goes back into a back three. So I think from that perspective, they're trying to get that balance here. Now, the results kind of very indicating, you know, very kind of mixed, really, particularly their away form. They lost in Larnaca to Cyprus 1-0, but they did were impressive. They will create chances, particularly in with their home crowd, but they do give chances away. I do remember Northern Ireland Lafferty scored a goal early, and Northern Ireland may be unlucky not to score another one or two. So I think if Ireland can maybe approach this game, be well organised, have that genuine attacking outlet as a front two, I think there's no reason here why we can't get a result. But again, an awful lot of kind of, you know, players kind of very experienced, particularly playing their trade, as you said, the big clubs, AK Athens, Olympiacos. But there's a few um, playing their trade in Germany, particularly um, Marvo Panos, very dominant centre half. So I think for Evan Ferguson, that matchup may be a potential one to watch as well. But I think overall here, uh, Joel, again, Gus Poyet on the on the bench, you know, you know he could liable to be exploding here at any given point as well. So I think from that perspective, as long as Ireland can keep their cool here for the first fifty sixty minutes, this Greece team do have form to basically maybe lose shape, lose a bit of discipline, and that's our point. And that's our cue to basically make make rewards here. Interesting to note that um, Mavropanos' team VSB Stuttgart. Uh, are currently in the relegation playoffs in uh, the Bundesliga, although they did have the lowest number of goals conceded in that bottom five. There's only 57 goals conceded in the 34 games. As we record, Stuttgart have won their first leg of the relegation playoff 3-0 against Hamburg SV, with Mavropanos actually opening the, the scoring after in only the first minute. Um, so, well, I'll never hope a player gets injured uh, if any Hamburg SV players are listening, um, maybe just rough them off a little in the, the return game. He's incredibly dominant in the air. Like, it's seen the first goal, but like that would be a focal point here. Gus Poyer has kind of brought an awful lot of English elements to this Greek side, particularly in a set piece, particularly with likes of Baldock there, good delivery into the box, but particularly with that centre half, he's very dominant. He almost reminds me of a Shane Duffy, you know, the way he basically attacks that ball. So I think from a Nathan Collins, Darrow O'Shea kind of perspective here, you know, it's really, they're going to have to be very watchful. John Egan as well, in terms of Mavropanos as well, because he is liable to create damage here if he's given a free header. 
felt any insights to Simicast. I mean, he's not uh, Liverpool. He doesn't play much for them, does he? He doesn't play much, but that's because I suppose Andy Robertson has been so good up until this season. Like he hasn't really got in, got into the team. He's a better crosser of the ball than Andy Robertson, I think. He's kind of like your standard attacking fullback. You know, he, he crosses the ball well. He gets up and down. He's he's an okay defender. Like he'll probably look great in this Greece team. He's not a world beater per se. Like do you want, just going through the squad? It looks, it just looks very settled, and it looks. Like it's just a very mature squad that win when they're meant to win and and lose when they're meant to lose. Like they look like we used to be about fifteen years ago. They'll go and they'll play Gibraltar and they'll beat them three 0 away. Like stuff that we can't do now, you know, without making a big deal of it. So, like Gus Poyet's not a good manager either. He's not going to be doing anything revolutionary out there in Greece, is he? You know, it was probably just a nice job they came up for him. So I think we should be beating them. Okay. Don't really want to go through the the Gibraltar squad because I don't know anything about any of them. What I would say to that is we shouldn't have to go through the Gibraltar squad because we should be beating them at home and we should be scoring two or three goals against them. And that's the minimum that's required and that's the minimum that's expected. And I think if we have to start doing a deep dive into the Gibraltar squad, I think see the lads are as well pack their bags and go on the dole. The Gibraltar game is one of these games that you can't actually win. You know, if you show up and... Do your job as you expect and win 3 0. Everyone goes, Well, it's Gibraltar. Well done. So, if you draw or lose it, then it's panic stations and worst manager ever and disgrace the football and probably wanted more than one mention of uh, root and branch reviews and changes at the grassroots level. We but, have them when we play most of these teams, though, because we never, like, I know what you're saying. And again, that's why I lose it. That's what we were like when Robbie Keane was our striker. We would go and beat these teams 3 or 4 0, and everyone would be like, Sound. Robbie Keane scored a few goals, Grand. Sure, we were going to beat them anyway. We're not in that. We don't do that anymore. Look at Latvia. Two goals. Armenia, two goals. We don't beat the, the easy teams easy anymore. We don't make it easy for ourselves. The last easy win we had was against Scotland, 3-0 at home. I think the fans of the Aviva would just love to just rock up there on, on the Monday and just watch them like score three goals and nothing really happen. I think everyone would be delighted with that. I think that would be a, that would be a huge w- win. Like Everyone would, would be delighted. There are no easy games in international football anymore either, Phil, or so Except Gibraltar. Except They've only ever won one game of international football, and that was against Latvia, who we struggled to beat because they could score twice. So <laughs> that's my point. We need to just like beat them 3-0, and, and you know, maybe we're all overthinking it. Like We will have the Lions' share of possession here, no doubt about it. It, it is now another test of the backroom staff and how these training session camps have gone in terms of how we penetrate teams like this that will basically form the bus just outside their penalty area and they'll basically Gibraltar will ask Republic of Ireland break us down and it's really up to us to kind of really isolate them in the flanks areas but the the, the so-called lesser teams don't do that against us anymore because they know they get a few shots from around the box you will definitely see with Gibraltar in the first 30 minutes they will park the bus now they will have seen the Armenia the Latvias in terms of how they basically come into games after 30 minutes and maybe have a pot with 10 minutes to go before half time and see if they can actually get something. So that's really where, again, it kind of goes to Stephen Kenny era again, isn't it? It's playing an awful lot of nice, nice football to see. But again, the penetration here, final third, and also our defensive unit as well has lapsed seriously against teams of this magnitude. So I think, uh, that's, that's an interesting game for me. You know, straight after the Greece game, hopefully we get the positive result that we're looking for. 
Really, this one should be a professional job. Get the job done. 2-3-0. Thanks very much. No car trouble. And then maybe blood a few guys there with 20, 30 minutes to go and keep a clean sheet, more importantly, against these sort of teams, you know. Uh, that has to be the tone set now from now on. Like, it'll be over a year since we played Scotland and kept a clean sheet at home when we yeah. played Gibraltar. Exactly. So that's, a clean sheet will be the, the focus along with a couple of goals. Gibraltar are playing France the same night that we play Greece. So, I mean, France... While they, you know, as we as we mentioned in the build-up to our own qualifier against them, they don't really hockey teams off the pitch anymore. They could still conceivably put five or six past Gibraltar, um, which means when they come to face us, you know, whatever that would do to their morale or their concentration levels, it might make things a little bit easier for us. I think so too, Joe. To be fair, um, the way fans will retain the ball there, particularly in Faroe, it's going to be a long evening for Gibraltar, so that may bode us well, but again, we have to be professional. Again, as Philip says, these games have to be basically kill the oxygen out of uh, Gibraltar early, get the early goal, and really kind of put the foot to the throat. Well, the build-up to the Women's World Cup has been uh, ongoing since beating Scotland in the playoffs last year. The other Irish team to play the major uh, tournament this year is the men's under-17s, whose 2023 UEFA European under-17 championship campaign recently came to an end in the quarterfinals against Spain. Qualifying top of their group meant that they got a, a favourable draw in the group stages, coming up against Poland, host Hungary and Wales. And after losing their opening game against Poland 5-1, uh, I think there was a bit of an overreaction to the result and the performance, uh, Poland were a lot stronger than we expected. The usual online discourse rage that, you know, the worst under-17 manager we've ever had, the worst performance we've ever had at under-17 level, none of which, of course, was true. And we bounced back to beat Wales 3-0 and follow it up with a 4-2 victory over Hungary to, to qualify for the quarterfinals, second in the group behind Poland. Mark, the campaign, as I say, came to an end against Spain in the quarterfinals, 3-0. Spain looked to have some absolute superstars in that team, with Yamal already playing for Barcelona's first team. But I thought it was a good performance from Colin O'Brien's team. Uh, there's a couple of players in the squad who will be eligible for the 2024 European Under-17 Championship. And there's definitely something that the team can build on when they graduate to the under-19 age group. Absolutely. It's been a fabulous experience for the manager, the management, the backroom staff, uh, even the player and the players as well. Kind of showed the resilience in it, Joe, very early on in this campaign. The 5-1 loss to Poland. I think we had flagged Poland as probably being the top seeds in that group, and so it proved. And their form in that championship as well. Let's set context here. They beat Serbia, and then they lost to Germany in an absolute classic semi-final 5-3. The final is between Germany and France. France beat Spain in the, in the semi-final. So I think from that perspective here, uh, Joe, that has to be set into context. Like these Ireland under-17s are playing the elite under-17s in Europe. So I think there was a bit of adjustment that had to take place. I thought the 3-0 win against Wales was absolutely super. I think some of the football that was played in that game was just absolutely on point and bodes very well for these players. I did like, like the likes of Turley here. Razzie as well really was prominent. Kier as well. 
So I think from that perspective, an awful lot of guys have gotten massive experience, an awful lot of exposure. And even that result against host nation Hungary, I know the two teams have played each other in March in Spain, you know, earlier on in the year, but they put this game to bed fairly quickly. So I think from that perspective here, Joe, this has been a beneficial experience playing tournament football of this magnitude. The Spanish game, you're going to learn from your losses. And uh, the hope here is that the likes of the Healy's, you know, Razzies, the Negri McGraths, Grants, the O'Sullivan's, these guys will reflect, move on and become better players for it and maybe get better opportunities playing when they get back to their clubs or if they're going to get loaned out to better clubs. So I think from that perspective, Joe, it's been a magnificent tournament and congratulations to everyone involved. I didn't get to see much of it now. I didn't actually see, I just saw the highlights of the Spain game. I was up at a Sligo Rovers game that evening. Great to see an Irish team score so many goals at the tournament and bounce back from that that first result. I think the way that, that I didn't, wasn't following it that closely, but I think there was a lot of talk at the time about this, the you know, this crack with the horse racing and all this money and the League of Ireland and basically why isn't there so much money being pumped into football? And I think that result was used as a kind of a stick to beat that point with, which wasn't a great thing to do because, as it turned out, it was a bit of a... Like, the Poland were obviously a better side, but it was a bit of a fluke as well, that result. The scoreline, maybe it was a bit flattering for Poland. But, um, no, just great to see them, like, and as uh, Mark said, beating the hosts and beating Wales, which is like a derby, I suppose, as well. So, like, the future's bright when you see a young team qualifier for a tournament like that and score so many goals. It was the youngest squad at the tournament and a lot of the squads still uh, qualifying to play in next year's championships, which will uh, kick off in October with Ireland actually hosting their group in the qualifying round. Cork City's Matthew Moore has already signed uh, a transfer deal to go to Germany to join Hoffenheim. Um, Any scout that was at the tournament Definitely would have been impressed with Mason Nelia, with Naj Razi and um, Jake Grant in defence. Yeah. Wish the team all the best uh, with the, the campaign for next year's tournament. How good is Mason Nelia right now, guys? I mean, I mean, he's only 15. The sky's the limit, you know. And for so many of these guys as well, you know. Well, they're boys, really, to be fair. I mean, Matthew Murray as well, 15. I think it's just a great story in terms of the League of Ireland clubs really fostering quality talent. And as you said there about Matthew Moore, I mean, the destinations Europe and continental Europe and really building a footballing education in Hoffenheim. So I think we might see more than one of these players going there because, look, there's been plenty of scouts at these games in Hungary. I wouldn't be at all surprised if another three or four guys followed the likes of Matthew Moore to continental Europe, given the exposure that they've gotten in this tournament. So, look, all bodes very well for the FBI, the grassroots, the underage development here. Uh, I think it's a good news story. The average age of players in the League of Ireland has come down quite a bit in the last few years. And with the traditional route of uh, promising young players in Ireland to the UK closed off now until they turn 18, the fact that clubs like... Shamrock Rovers, Cork City, Sabarish Athletic can turn to their, their youth players and say, look, if you stay here, you will play senior club football and it could lead to a move to Germany, to Italy, to Spain. And we've seen like the likes of James Obankwa has gone in less than 12 months for playing for Sabarish Athletic to turning out for Udinese in Syria. With the whole situation with uh, players not being able to move over to England until they're 18, 
there must be a lot more weight put into the decisions made now by younger players to move abroad than there was, say, when players, a lot of players were moving to England because it's only an hour away. And I would imagine that clubs would just take a lot of players and say, well, look, if they don't work out, it's okay. It's not going to cost a lot of money. It's no big deal. They'll be home. You know, they're only, it's only across the road, really, like. So there would have been a bit of a laissez-faire attitude to some clubs taking a lot of players and, like, not really caring if it worked out. Say, like, if eight went over and, and they got one, they'd be happy enough. It would be no big deal. Whereas now there's a lot more thought being put into these younger players moving abroad to, say, continental Europe. And they'll want certain guarantees that they're going to play or have a proper pathway into senior football. So it's it's much better for them. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And also the educational system in these clubs in continental Europe. I think Pharisees, I know there's been improvements within the English football clubs on awareness of you players and academy and getting education involved. But I think the continental Europe side of things would be so much superior to what's in the UK right now. I think it's a footballing, but also education have a backup here if things did not go well in terms of career wise. So I think from that perspective, I think it's a glorious move. It's almost going like the Scandinavian model, guys, in terms of, you know, young promising players from Scandinavia. You see them kind of blossom under 18, 19, 20, and then moving on. I think we might be seeing the same here as well if that avenue with the UK is shut, given Brexit. I think it's a kind of a key point here. We may see more players nurture and get developed in League of Ireland and then then go on to bigger and better things. And these tournaments particularly are their weight in gold in terms of these players and what the, the the interest that they're going to be getting from the likes of the Hoffenheims, the Schalke 04s, even AC Milan, you know, there's Kelleher there. So, I mean, the, there's a vast range of players there that are on the radar of an awful lot of these football clubs. So, long may it continue. We hope you've enjoyed our preview of the upcoming qualifiers for the senior men's team against Greece and Gibraltar and our breakdown of the squad announced by Stephen Kenny and our brief review of the under-17s uh, European Championship campaign. I want to thank Mark and Phil for joining me. You can follow Mark on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Hawkeye Psychic and Philip uh, on Twitter at Philip Flanagan. Uh, I'm Joseph McCarthy. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Irish underscore abroad or Irish football statistics on Facebook and Instagram. We're going to review the 2022-2023 season in England in our next episode. We'll have that out before the game against Greece kicks off in two weeks' time. We hope to talk to you then. Take care. <laughs>